0: Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times, I'm Sean McKenna. It was just over a week ago on February 6, that a magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck southern and central Turkey as well as northern Syria, a rattle that was followed by thousands of aftershocks including a particularly strong magnitude 7.7 a few hours after the initial jolt. As of now, the death toll is in the tens of thousands making this one of the most devastating disasters in the region's recorded history. On today's show, I'll talk with my deep dive co-host Jason Jenkins about a concept called regenerative urbanism, which is aimed at preparing communities for natural disasters like earthquakes and tsunami, and those disasters that are increasing as a result of the climate crisis. At the end of the show, we'll also go over some things you can do to help prepare yourself for a potential earthquake where you live.
1: Hey, Jason. Hey, Sean.
0: I take it you've been following the news about the quake in Turkey. You're in Osaka now.
1: Were you there when the Great East Japan earthquake hit on March 11th, 2011? No, I was still living in Tokyo at the time. And you know, you kind of get used to little quakes here and there. But when this one hit, you just knew it was different. It was terrifying. And with all the trains stopped, I had to walk about two hours to reach my kids' daycare to see if they were okay. I was a wreck.
0: Yeah, I believe the trains automatically stop and are checked for possible damage if the shaking is severe enough. The actual quake, located off the shore of Miyagi Prefecture in the Tohoku region, measured a magnitude 9, but we felt it 450 kilometers away here in Tokyo.
1: Oh, you were in Tokyo then?
0: Yeah, I was working for the Japan Times in our office near Tokyo Bay, and I had to walk a few hours to get home too.
1: Well, if a long walk home is the extent of both of our experiences in the Tohoku quake, then we really should consider ourselves pretty lucky, right? Mm-hmm. In all, the disaster killed over 19,000 people, and around 2,500 are still missing almost 12 years later. I mean, a real catastrophe. Keep those numbers in your head, around 19,000 deaths 12 years later. Now let's look at Turkey and Syria, where the death toll has already reached beyond 40,000 at the time we're recording this, about one week later. It's really hard to wrap your head around it. From what I've read,
0: experts believe that one reason for the amount of casualties in Turkey comes down to lax building standards.
1: Because they feel this country has been here before, where some buildings collapsed while others remained standing, and they are left asking, have the building regulations really been enforced? There is a saying in this country among civil engineers and architects that earthquakes don't kill people, bad buildings do. Yeah, officials are saying more than 12,000 buildings toppled in the earthquake and then the subsequent aftershocks. And those were both new and old structures. I'm sure there's going to be lots of investigations into this. Quake-proof construction is also something that affects us here in Japan. But Japan has very strict building code standards and has used architectural solutions like motion dampening and built-in shock absorption that makes things a lot safer. In fact, due to its location on several fault lines, Japan has had to do a lot of research into disaster preparedness. Earthquakes and tsunami, of course, and increasingly flooding, fires, and other climate-related disasters.
0: This stuff was on our radar well before the Turkey quake. Jason, I remember you specifically were interested in a piece our colleague, Will Fee, wrote, titled How Researchers in Disaster-Prone Japan and the Pacific Are Rethinking City Design. It largely tackles a concept called regenerative urbanism. Can you sum up what that means for us?
1: Sure. Regenerative urbanism doesn't really slip off the tongue, but uh, this concept is really interesting. It's something that architects and city planners want to use to build new human habitats that better coexist with nature and the eventual natural disasters instead of trying to stop them from happening altogether. Sometimes in our attempts to block these catastrophes, which are going to happen anyway, we wind up causing further environmental damage in other areas, or simply just separating ourselves from our natural surroundings altogether. Regenerative urbanism wants to change that. A lot of it is still theoretical, but it could really influence what future cities look like. Not just in Japan, but wherever you find earthquakes, typhoons, and other natural disasters. Okay, give me an example of a way that we might hurt
0: the environment in the process of trying to protect ourselves from it.
1: So, back in October, Japan Times contributor Mara Budgen, friend of the pod, wrote about this surfing town called Katoku in a piece titled Battle to Save Kagoshima Seawall Highlights Divide Over Coastal Engineering. And she's really describing how local authorities are building these massive concrete seawalls along the beach as a means of dealing with increased risk of typhoons and even possible tsunami. Some residents want these walls, while others say that construction like this causes long-term beach erosion and cuts the town off from one of its best features and sources of economic development, the beach itself. So, regenerative urbanism
0: is trying to find a happy medium?
1: Yeah, that's right. It consists of three main goals conserving the natural environment, protecting against disaster, and building better human settlements that improve the well being of those who live there. These ideas are outlined in something mentioned in Will Fee's piece called the ARC DR3 Project. ARC DR3,
0: what does that stand for?
1: stands for the Architecture and Urban Design for Disaster, Risk, Reduction, and Resilience Project. There's your three R's. It's tough because, again, with the seawalls, you see them all along the coast of Japan, especially after the Tohoku earthquake. People are so scared of another tsunami that they're willing to build a cement wall that could be up to 15 meters high that blocks them from the coastline. It kind of reminds me of, have you seen Attack on Titan? Oh, the anime. No, no. The
0: seawalls kind of remind me of the walls built around the cities in that show. They keep the giant titans out, but also lock the residents of those towns in, though they keep them safe for a while anyway.
1: Oh, right. Okay. No, I haven't seen it. So no spoilers, Sean. Okay, no worries.
0: Let's take a break. And when we get back, we'll get deeper into regenerative urbanism. Hi, I'm Natalia Makahon. I'm from Ukraine and I'm interning with the Deep Dive podcast from Japan Times. If you are interested in donation to relief efforts for Turkey Syria earthquake and you're living in Japan, we suggest you check out the Association for Aid and Relief Japan. You can find them at aar.japan.gr.gp. Or go to the website for Tokyo Jami and Dionet Turkish Culture Center, which has information on how to donate funds. That address is TOKYOCAMII.org. We will include those links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Jason, you spoke to one of the architects at the Center of Regenerative Urbanism. Yes, I did. My name is Hitoshi Abe.
2: I'm 61, and I'm a professor at the Department of Architecture and Urban Design in UCLA. He's a really interesting guy. And also I'm a director of Terasaki Center for Japanese Study.
1: Wears a lot
0: of hats.
2: And also I'm a director of X-Lab.
0: It sounds like it. This
2: is an institution to do the research, to thinking about the way to expand the boundary of our profession as an architect and urban designer.
1: He's also the principal architect at Aterie Hitoshiabe, his own firm and the founder of Arc dr 3 the project I just mentioned. Professor Abe was born and raised in Sendai, where the March 11th earthquake hit. He was in Los Angeles at the time, but he had friends, family, employees, all in Sendai. And this experience compelled him to work on ideas that eventually led to regenerative urbanism.
2: Actually, you know, architects have such a strong community, and uh, they communicate well, and then they try to collaborate, and... Uh, Immediately after the earthquake, I received so many emails from everybody around the world offering help. And then I started to get together with my friends, and then we established a network of architects to offer help to the community who has to think about the future vision of the community, not to just go back to how it was, but to think about the future. And we know that it's really difficult to think such things. So
1: Abe says that after five years working on these ideas and raising money for the area, he felt like many things just weren't right. In fact, he mentioned the seawalls again.
2: After seeing huge seawall being built, protecting area that people are not coming back, being kind of a separated from the nature such a big denial that the humans are part of the nature
1: abe felt like the only solution being used was concrete when he believed that there had to be some other different approach maybe many different approaches actually
2: it's almost like uh, repeating the same sort of a mistake that we actually suffered a lot
1: the whole idea of regenerative urbanism became about finding a way to coexist with nature
2: but uh the problem is because you really want to forget about this horrible thing happened, destroyed your life. You want to go back to actually how it was. So such a desire actually leads you to the situation so that you're completely disconnected from the nature. But I think that's completely wrong.
0: That's something that I hadn't really thought of, the idea of this lingering trauma that is informing our decision to protect ourselves from future disasters, which leads us to making poor choices in the short
1: term. Who else is involved with the project? There are 11 institutions participating in Abe's ARC-DR3 project, mostly along the Pacific Rim. Together, they're creating new models for cities, each specializing in absorbing the impact of whatever disaster their region deals with. For example, wildfires are a huge problem in California. So the UCLA team have developed a concept they call the pyroactive city. A
0: pyroactive city? That
1: sounds kind of dangerous. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Fire bad, right? <laughs> well, the wildfires themselves are quite dangerous and increasingly common. The past few years have seen huge swaths of California, Canada, Australia, Greece just burned off the map. But forest fires are also a part of nature, and indigenous people used controlled fires to encourage new growth. So one of the components that goes into pyroactive cities, according to the UCLA team and ARCDR3, would be surrounding residential neighborhoods and business districts with farmland, basically forming a natural buffer system.
0: So is it like a moat, but instead of a castle surrounded by water, you'd have like a neighborhood surrounded by tomato fields?
1: Tomatoes, lettuce. What else does California grow? Almost everything, right? So, yeah, that's basically it. It seems so simple, but it really could have a dramatic effect. Abe says this new kind of agricultural zone would also present opportunities for agritourism involving the locals. And if you create opportunities for the local population while buffering out-of-control wildfires at the same time, you really have a win-win situation. Another type of city I saw
0: mentioned was the reforest city. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Sure. One of Singapore University's contributions is all about reforesting urban areas with tropical trees and plants that thrive in higher temperatures. This not only creates a carbon sink working to slow the effects of climate change, but it also raises the quality of life in the city with more green space. Actually, some of the ideas coming out of Singapore were really interesting. A few of them were quite out there. Like what? Well, Abe was telling me about a proposal for farming solar power through a giant hydrogen balloon. It would rise to the sky during the day, collect power, and then come down at night. I mean, it beats the spy balloons. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. And again, it's mostly a, you know, a conceptual phase right now, but it's still so cool. Another issue in Southeast Asia is the rising sea levels. So allow me to introduce the hydrophilic city. And this concept proposes a way for urban areas to act like a sponge. They absorb the water and then redirect it as needed. I guess this would deal with flooding from
0: storm systems like typhoons, hurricanes, and what we know in Japan as gorilla rainstorms.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, One idea Abe told me about was having large urban parks with landscaped areas that have empty ponds, lakes, maybe canals. And when the tide comes in, these spaces fill with that water and change the scenery entirely. And then now you have this beautiful landscape with water in it as well. It looks quite different.
2: People can enjoy water level not as a disaster, but as a part of the human phenomena, like a full season.
1: They're still working on how to design these, but he's told me about places in Taiwan that are using the same concept to research sustainable ways to farm fish using this method. Did the professor
0: mention how any of these ideas could be applied to places in Japan?
1: Oh, sure. And it's not all sci-fi like the Singapore ideas. In fact, some of the ideas come straight from Japan's past. The country has written records that go back for millennia with lots of natural phenomena recorded in them. For example, Will's article mentions an area of Sendai flattened during the tsunami that hit Tohoku on March 11th. But further inland, you'd find a place called Namiwakajinja. Namiwakajinja translates to wave break shrine. Sometimes the best preparation for disaster is to know where and where not to build. And in cases like this, the past may be trying to tell us something.
0: Right. Like don't build a house on, I don't know, a cliff on erosion bluffs.
1: <laughs> right. Or you know, a summer home on Typhoon Island, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's what Abe had to say about that.
2: I think, you know, there are many, maybe, examples about the regenerative urbanism existing in Japan, even from long time ago. You know, for instance, there's a kind of a residential type, like a Funagata yashiki by the Oi River, so that the shape of the land, of the house, is like a
1: ship. So, the Funagata yashiki he's mentioning here. Funagata literally means shape of a ship. And yashiki means residence. So, this... Practice of funagata yashiki is simply knowing how and where water flows in your area, and then giving your property this shape of a ship's bow in a particular place to where, when a tsunami or flash flood happens, you can divert the water away from your home. Maybe even feed that water right back into a river or into your fields.
2: So the there's a flood comes in, this kind of little dike surrounding around the house can actually let the water go to the waterline, to be fed to the agriculture land and things like that. So there are many sort of a uh, precedent.
1: The one thing I got out of researching regenerative urbanism and speaking to Professor Abe is that it's a multidisciplinary approach involving not just architects and city planners, but scientists, educators, art producers, and more to try to find creative solutions and to help convey information about the environment to the people who live there.
0: Well, until that day, I guess we'll just have to rely on our go bags to stay prepared. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the practical things you can do to stay safe.
2: It all starts here, on the seabed along the Pacific Rim. Sections of the Earth's crust grind together, causing volcanic eruptions and earthquakes. It's known as the Ring of Fire.
1: The Ring of Fire is the name we give to the troughs and trenches that surround the Pacific Ocean, an area that includes New Zealand, Indonesia and its neighbours, the west coasts of North and South America, and Japan. If you live in any of the cities that dot this ring, you're likely to have experienced an earthquake, but also probably thought of preparing yourself for the big one.
0: That's right. So off the southern coast of Japan, there's a trench on the ocean floor that stretches from Shizuoka Prefecture to Kyushu. Along this trench, the Philippine sea plate is sinking beneath the Eurasian plate. As the two plates grind against one another, friction builds and builds. Japanese scientists are concerned that this spot where the two plates meet, known as the Nankai Trough, is overdue for an earthquake. In a piece written for the 10th anniversary of the Great East Japan Earthquake, Eric Margolis speculated on what might happen if this Nankai quake were to occur. It's a kind of choose-your-own-adventure-style article. Do you try to escape, or do you stay put? Do you get in touch with family immediately, or do you wait till later? It was an interesting read, even though
1: it was a bit scary. So Sean, when I was speaking to Professor Abe, he stressed three things to do, or have really, when it comes to disaster preparedness. He said...
2: One is, of course, charged cell phone.
1: This may seem obvious, but Professor Abe just wanted to emphasize that a charged cell phone was crucial to people after the Tohoku earthquake, as they were more likely to be able to get information. The second? Second is the shoes under your bed. It's important to have shoes right next to you to protect you from broken glass when you start moving. It's hard to escape with slashed up feet, so keep some crocs by your bed. Finally. Thirdly. Little whistle.
0: Like a sports
1: whistle, yeah? That's what ours looks like. Abe reckons that the government will look for you in the rubble of a collapsed building for at least two days. You may not be able to yell for help, but you could be able to blow a whistle. Good to know. In his
0: piece, Eric mentions preparing a go-bag with a flashlight, helmet, gloves, some food, so maybe protein bars, medicine, batteries, a lighter, candles, some water, a blanket, clothing, a first aid kit, and a case with your passport, ID, a health insurance card, an Incon seal if you use one, and a family photo. At home, keep an extra stock of essentials like water bottles, food, toilet paper, plastic bags, and disinfecting wipes. Get a portable gas cooking stove if possible, a hand rechargeable radio, a battery charger for your phone, and, when you're decorating your place in Japan, don't go for high bookcases. If you do, you need to secure your furniture to the wall with L brackets. Most of all, know the evacuation route for your neighborhood and know your nearby parks
1: and community facilities. Also, it's worth getting to know your neighbors. You may have to rely on them if something happens, or they may need to rely on you. Exactly.
0: The community aspect is something that people don't always think about in advance. Thinking about disasters and disaster preparedness can be a stressful way to spend your time, but we can't let that catch us off guard. We'll include links to a bunch of stories on the topic in the show notes. Jason, thanks for joining me on this week's Deep Dive. It was nice working with you, Sean. If you're in the Los Angeles area, then check out Professor Hitoshi Abe and X-Labs Designing with Disaster exhibition at
1: Japan House Los Angeles. It runs till April 2nd. Elsewhere in the Japan Times, staff writers Eric Johnston and Dan Orlowitz report that as the planet warms, cities like Sapporo may end up one of the few cities capable of hosting the Winter Olympics. Kazuaki Nagata describes how corporate Japan is trying to transform the company cafeteria as employees return to the office. And Gabriel Dominguez writes on how concerns over a rising China are pushing Japan and the Philippines into a closer regional security arrangement. For these stories and thousands more, please consider a subscription to the Japan Times. Production for Deep Dive is
0: by Dave Cortez. Our intern is Natalia Makohon. And the outgoing track is by Oscar Boyd. Our theme song is by the Japanese artist 4L. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, お疲れ様.
1: お疲れ様.